So, in my household, there's a war going on over smart tech. I'm personally pretty suspicious of it. I don't want a doorbell camera. I don't want to give my fingerprints away to just anyone. I definitely don't want speakers listening to every word that comes out of my mouth. Sorry, I didn't quite get that. But my husband is different. He bought us a smart speaker. He thinks we need a fingerprint-enabled front door, whatever that means. And when we argue about it, he says that the robots are going to take over anyway. So we might as well embrace them. And maybe they'll be kind to us when they inevitably take over the world and choose who they want to spare. I like you. You're my friend. So if the topic of integrating technology into our lives can create so much friction in just one single household, how do we even begin to have the conversation on a global scale? I'm Roma Agrawal, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. And in today's episode, we're hosting a lively debate on smart tech, predictive analytics, and big data. Whenever you use the smart in front of technology, add supposedly. And then ask yourself, who gains what intelligence? For what purpose? When? How? We'll be discussing whether smart tech is good, bad, or is it somewhere in between? Who decides what we develop, how it's deployed, and for what purpose? Just the debate we are having right now, we just need more of that, and it should be part of our DNA if I could self-criticize our community. And do we even know how much technology has already changed us? Just to be provocative. Do it, do it. I might say <laughs> the exact opposite. <laughs> in one corner, we've got Brett Frischman, who is a professor in law, business and economics, and wrote a book called Re-Engineering Humanity. We have all this digital network tech. We have more information, more data available for more people in the world than ever in human history. Are we smarter? And in the other is Misha Dola, who is the Vice President in Emerging Technologies at Ericsson. He's interested in the Internet of Things and innovation in technology, sciences and the arts. I think there's a unique opportunity for us to use that technology we're building right now to bring us back to the human side, not to these slaves who wake up in the nine to five job. Uh, we can be there for each other, we can write poems, we can compose music. Let's see if they can offer me any ideas for achieving marital bliss. Brett, Misha, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we're in three different countries around the world, which I love. I love that we're going to get some nice global perspectives this morning. So, Brett, if you could please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do. Sure. So my name is Brett Frischman. I'm the Charles Widger Endowed University Professor in Law, Business and Economics at Villanova University, which is just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I recently authored a book called Reengineering Humanity, co-authored with Evan Selinger. And uh, I teach internet law and privacy law and other kinds of tech law, usually interdisciplinary courses. And I write in, in all kinds of different fields. Misha, welcome to you as well. If you could, again, just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah, my name is Misha Dola. I'm now Vice President of Emerging Technologies at Ericsson in Silicon Valley. And as in the title, I deal with a lot of emerging technologies such as AI, quantum, blockchain, 5G, 6G. That really keeps me busy on the tech side. But I'm also interested in the arts and music. I'm a composer myself. So I often look also at the more humanitarian aspects of technology. So we're talking about integrative smart technology coming into our lives, into you know, our, our everyday existence. And I would really love to hear like a 60 second pitch from each of you 
to tell me your perspective of, you know, what role this stuff plays in our world. So Misha, could I start with you, please? Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I really maintain that smart technology truly becomes smart when it becomes when it becomes invisible. So all the magic we do from the engineering perspective, uh, the moment it enters the fabric of our society, of our daily use, this is where really, in my opinion, the, the smartness really happens. Amazing. Thank you. And Brett, the same. What, what do you think the role of these technologies are? in our world. <laughs> it's fun. Let me, just to be provocative. Do it, do it. <laughs> I might say the exact opposite. <laughs> that the smart technologies are best working for society when they're seem full rather than seamless. When we actually know what they're doing to whom and how. So I've written a bit about this, but I, I would suggest that whenever we use the word smart, we don't have to do it on this, this podcast, but in the future, whenever you use the smart in front of technology, add supposedly in front of it, <laughs> and then ask yourself a series of questions about who gains what intelligence, for what purpose, when, how, etc. Like, and I've written about like what those kinds of questions ought to look like and who ought to be asking them. But in order to ask those questions, the smart tech actually can't be invisible because you've got to know that it's actually operating. Great, thanks. So I like this dichotomy, maybe, between the invisible technology and the seam full technology. So it looks like both of you are coming from slightly different perspectives, which is great because I love a debate. Misha, you work in this field. Can you explain to somebody who might not understand much about this area what the current landscape is and where we've got to to date? Well, it's a very broad question, right? So technology ranges from rockets to nano type of equipment. And, uh, you know, generally what we try to do, engineers, is to really miniaturize things, amplify human capabilities, uh, you know, make it a, a very seamless experience uh, for people to use technologies, whatever that is, whether you're using, you know, ChatGPT today uh, or you're driving a Tesla uh, or you're, you know, playing around with your mobile phone. So I think this is really what engineers try to do. I see Brett's point in terms of, you know, it has to be visible from an accountability point of view. And I really can smell the lawyer here in that debate. Uh, but from an engineering point of view, we will always try to make it, you know, as seamless and as intuitive as possible. Because at the end of the day, I think our mission is really to bring out that humanness, this creativity. We, again, you know, have time to maybe write poems or compose pieces. Think about how much, you know, stuff we do every day we could actually outsource to machines or whatever. And that's really the journey I think we are on, if that makes sense. Brett, what are some of the alarm bells that are ringing in your head about how this technology can impact us? So the alarm bell ringing in the media right now is, you know, that, oh my gosh, there will be AGI, the rise of a, a artificial general intelligence uh, that's going to be optimized to, you know, for to making paper clips or something. Uh, and it's going to, you know, there's an, a misalignment and it's going to sort of destroy the world and da, 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 da. And it's a to me, that's a complete distraction. Not only is it not really AGI is not really in our near future, um, but also it's a distraction from the set of alarm bells that are going off in my head. It's We're more at risk of death by a thousand cuts than we are a single samurai slice, right? It's not that there's one big bad technology on the, it's, it's the collection uh, of lots of little technologies that infringe on our autonomy and our practice of our own free will and our own self-authorship and determination. The things that make me worried are when our attention spans 
are increasingly shrinking. The kinds of content we share, generate and share on our social media posts are increasingly shallow uh, and superficial. The kind of engagement for which almost every online platform is optimized for is the thinnest form of Orwellian engagement you can imagine, right? Clicking, swiping, um, it's very rarely meaningful engagement. And so the more you witness those kinds of behaviors, the more that those are, that, that set off different kinds of alarm bells. Misha, how do you respond to uh, Brett's concerns? Uh, listen, uh, pretty interesting, actually, you know, coming back to the first question you asked about visible and invisible technology, you know, I'm sure that Brett doesn't even know maybe 50% of the tech, which is at home, the smart stuff, you know, and then the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I know that my home has certain things, I can list them one by one, but I also know there's a lot of stuff I don't see. And the, the interesting thing is, you know, a few years back, and we had a really deep and solid conversation in the ecosystem about this user experience experience user interface. As an example, a laptop, a computer, if you want it to be off, you just close it, switch it off. There's a real kind of engagement. You know it is off. Now, the cameras in your home, you know, the uh, the the fire alarm, you know, the sensors in my Tesla, all that, you know, just don't know what they're on or off. And is that a good thing, a bad thing? So therefore, as engineers, we try to make it invisible. But, uh, you know, of course, Brett has a point. We need to make sure that this has been vetted and it's all privacy where and we, we, we kind of uh, buy into this. So we, I think we need more conversations about this. We need maybe, you know, a, a way for humans to understand this technology is safe and, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the pitfalls and all that. So just wanted to mention that the visibility and visibility is something which is very much still, you know, I think a kind of a, a, a modern debate we should have, if that makes sense. Misha, I think that's a great point. I think it's absolutely, you're absolutely right that, um, and this goes back to like the infrastructure stuff from way back when for me, but much of what really matters that is infrastructural in our lives, it's become so normalized and important that it fall, fades in the background and we don't appreciate it. When I say that things need to be seamful and visible, I don't mean everything, mm. right? Because at some point then it's just fatiguing. Mm. Like we can't pay attention to all of the things that are going on in our lives. But I guess... One of the things I resist is the design mantra, which, and by the way, I'm an engineer. I was an engineering grad in grad school before I became a lawyer. But so I'm an engineer also. You went I to get, the dark side, dark yes, side. I, well, I, I now collaborate more with, with, with computer scientists and engineers than, you know, than I do with lawyers sometimes. But the point I was going to make is that deciding when something should be seamful or something should be seamless assumes that there is a choice to be made. Mm. The design mantra in HCI, the design mantra in engineering, and frankly, the design mantra in economics is aiming for frictionlessness, seamlessness, making things as quick, expanding the scale and scope of interactions. Like there's a bunch of design mantras that really influence what people build as a default. And then you've got to sort of argue to move off the default. All I'm suggesting when I say we want some visibility, some seamfulness, is that that default needs to be questioned yeah. as a matter of design. Agreed. Good point. Brett, you talk about techno-social engineering in your book. Can you explain what that term means? Sure. Uh, I'd love to. So techno-social engineering is sort of an extension of uh, Frederick Taylor's idea of scientific management of human beings uh, in the workplace. So his basic idea in the early 20th century right, was to collect data about task performance and incentives in the workplace. Then systematically and scientifically manage workers 
by controlling the environment and adjusting rewards and punishments. Wow. Like gathering data with like a guy walking around with like a notebook and a pen and like watching what people do and keeping notes and whatever, right? Sort of a form of surveillance. And then putting that data to use and managing people by regulating, conditioning, and controlling their behavior. So if you fast forward through the 20th century, we can walk through a whole series of technological and economic developments, computerization, development of statistical modeling, uh, the, the development of networking, and even things like mass media. There's a series of developing technologies that allow the Taylorist idea of scientifically managing people to sort of extend outside the workplace to be practiced in the home, to be practiced in schools, and pretty much to be practiced everywhere else in between, right? So techno-social engineering of humans, it's data-driven processes where technologies and social forces are designed to shape how we think, how we perceive, how we act. And so, you know, the thinking about techno-social engineering of humans as a sort of scientific or data-driven management or engineering of systems that manage people in different contexts uh, is what I refer to, and it sort of sets up that conversation we were just having a few minutes ago about the design mantras that I'd mentioned yeah. that are in, in law, economics, and engineering. They all kind of flow out of this idea of if we have enough data, we can just manage people. Yeah, I want to bring Misha in here. Misha, can you comment on, like, because there's engineering, um, and then there's the way the engineering, I guess, is applied. There's corporate stuff in that. There's government, there's politics, there's the capitalist versus socialism question. There's these huge questions out there. So can you maybe talk a little bit about how the engineering and these social ideas interact? Look, I'm, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I'm qualified enough to talk about politics and all that, but, you know, I can tell you what I'm fascinated about. I'm fascinated about that shift of identity, which, you know, technology brings about identity in humans. And in fact, the title of my book is, you know, from passports to passwords, because I feel, you know, as a as a human nation, you know, a human, you know, human race, we kind of are very, very concerned about, you know, geography, our passports, about, you know, what country were you born in, you know, what flag are you going to, you know, 4th of July and all that. This was like hugely important, I think, you know, 10, 20 20 years ago. And today it is really more about passwords in the sense, you know, you have different identities on different uh, social platforms. Uh, what does it mean to us as a human being? What does it mean in terms of, you know, truth and all that? So I work on, on that angle. And I think the, the, the role technology plays there to accelerate that engineering, computer science, you put it all together. Uh, this is, I think, hugely fascinating. Uh, what I'm also working on is a bit the darker side, what concerns me. So Brett articulated, he wasn't, he isn't very concerned about AG at this point. Uh, and I, I agree with them. We're probably not there yet. But I feel, you know, if you put certain technologies together, we could end up in a world where we just haven't thought about regulatory uh, regimes uh, well enough. And I give you a specific example, which actually truly worries me. So you take the transformer models, which under pin the large language models such as chat GPT and all that. And then you plug in acceleration technologies like quantum stuff, which is really happening. I can tell you, you know, quantum tech is really accelerating. And you plug in robotics, so the execution part of that, you suddenly end up with a triangle of technologies which I call the triangle of death because it is really could, could, you know, spell, you know, certain things for humanity we haven't thought about. So we regulate really well. Could, could you give us an example? 
Um, yeah, thinking about AI becoming kind of semi-sentient, right? So it's a long way to go. I, I think it is. Uh, but it now has access to neuromorphic and quantum compute fabric, is able to learn and teach itself much quicker than we humans could, and then has an execution capability for robotics, whether that is, you know, hard robotics or soft robotics. And suddenly, no, no kill switch we introduce into the internet or into all that technology technology would actually help. So I'm worried about this. And I think from a regulatory point of view, we need to make sure that we also regulate the combination of technologies and not only standalone quantum AI, robotics and all that. So does that make sense to you guys? It's it's really interesting. And I, I also want to hear the other side from you, Misha. If you've got a triangle of death, do you have the triangle of hope or life? I do, of course. I'm a hopeless optimist. So there is a <laughs> triangle of love, you know, and uh, I really feel, you know, now ever since the Industrial Revolution has kind of decoupled our working and living places and kind of massified both. We, had, we, we kind of departed from what has defined us, I think, humans uh, all the time before that. So, and I think there's a unique opportunity for us to use that technology we are building right now to bring us back really to the human side, not to these slaves who wake up in the nine to five job, who are doing, you know, receipts in the morning, same emails in the morning, you know, uh, doing the same repetitive task again and again. You actually outsource that to the entire machinery we're building and we can come back to the creativity. We can be humans with humans, empathy. Uh, we can be there for each other. We can write poems. We can compose music. You know, we, we can just be, again, uh, humans as I think we were designed to be in the first place. So that is my triangle of love, if that makes sense. Brett, what do you think our reaction is to these change? These like, you know, new technologies seem to be coming at us all the time. How, you know, how do we respond to them? We often don't have time to, to think about how to respond to them. So we react, mm. right? Um, if you take the generative AI release, the companies are largely in an arms race in a winner-takes-all market. Mm. In some ways, the, what OpenAI did in releasing ChatGPT to the public was, quote-unquote, responsible because they at least have some guardrails up. They have some limits. You don't have access to the weights in the, in the, in the underlying model. Um, they can limit the kinds of uh, prompts uh, that one can engineer and, and use. Compare that, for example, to Meta's release of its LLM weights in an open source fashion, and largely there's just you know there's thousands of people developing in an open source sort of process. In some ways, they can be good and creative, and we can get good things out of them. On the other hand, we can get misinformation machines at a scale that are very hard to sort of roll back. So, as from a policy, political, social perspective, when technology Technologies are just released in an arms race like that. We're just reacting. So that's why last December, all across the world, every institution imaginable, higher education, grade school, elementary teachers, you know, people working in journalism, people, all kinds of different fields are like, what do we do now? Mm. Um, and so it was largely just a like, oh my gosh, let's react. And you know, some of that maybe is productive, some of it's over overdone, and it's hard to sort of evaluate the the general public reactions. But because of the way that the release happens uh, of new technologies comes faster and faster, it's really hard for anyone to sort of have a measured uh, response. And then you sort of see some of the responses that we've seen in the media of you know people writing letters saying to sort of ban it or halt it or, or whatever. Mm. Um, so what, what do you think we should do? Because I feel like the speed at which these things are going to come out is, is not going to get any slower. So what's the solution? 
Yeah, interestingly, at King's College, we had a, a whole department studying the adoption of new technologies. And they found out no matter how quickly we introduce things, it takes about a generation to truly bring this into, the, let's say, the fabric of society. So we still seem to be with that generation game, you know, no matter how quickly things come up. Whether that hypothesis still holds, I really don't know. That's a good that's a good question. I mean, I actually think the better answer to your earlier question is we don't know, we need to study it more. Mm. Like we need to have actually like systematically study not only like what's the um adoption rate of new technology over time, but also what's the response type? Like how in fact do different institutions respond to different types of technology? But that's a long-term longitudinal kind of study that is really hard to do. To my knowledge, I don't know who's doing those studies right now, but I don't I don't feel like I have a good answer as to sort of at at the big picture level. In terms of individuals, we just take it as it comes and if the technology's free to use, at least initially, right? People test it, they try it and they see mm. what they can do. Misha, what is the role of engineers in in this discussion? How much are you and your team thinking about the ethics and the adoption and the societal impacts of the things that you're producing? So in Ericsson, interestingly, it's really on the top of the agenda. Any technology we do and connectivity is central to all of that because we're really designing platforms and internets these days. So therefore, the ethics of design, privacy, you know, by engineering design, security and all that, you know, is really central to all the propositions. I'm not sure it is always the case for all engineering endeavors or computer science endeavors, I have to say. I wish it would be, you know, taught more at schools, um, you know. I wish we had more Brits around the world who would really show these implications to engineers. We need to bring this to the forefront. I feel we're not doing enough, but you know, certain corporates, and of course I work for a Swedish corporate, uh, for them this is kind of a top-line item, if that makes sense. There, there's a lot of uh, emerging collaborations among computer science, engineering, ethicists, lawyers and other social sciences. Not enough, but I can think in the last six months, I've been at at least three or four different conferences where it's no longer just lawyers and law professors getting together in a room and talking about the research. It's 50-50 lawyers and technologists, often also psychologists or other uh, social scientists. So uh, that's a, a slight movement in the right direction, I think. Yeah, but, you know, interestingly, about a year ago, I was at a really interesting conference organized by uh, HAI, which is a Stanford Human AI-centered uh, initiative. And, you know, all the best scholars around the world were there. And there was a panel, I remember, it really struck me, where three computer scientists, engineers, and one a psychologist, and all of them were, like, top-notch in their field, okay? So the engineers start presenting all that generative stuff they're doing, the nerves, the uh, transformer models, and, uh, you know, the audience stands up and applauds, and they love it, and, you know, we're just all excited and excited, and we're beating completely new world records and all that. Last speaker goes up, psychologist, Stanford, you know, probably number one in the world. She says, guys, you're crazy what you're doing here. You're completely lost normalization on this stuff which is happening here. And it really struck me that engineers, we often in our own kind of rat race, you know, we are chasing, you know, citations to our papers. So there's too much of that. And I think there's too little debate. Uh, just the debate we are having right now, we just need more of that. And it should be part of our debate. Uh, DNA if I could self-criticize our community. And we're trying very hard. It's going the right direction, as Brett says. But I really think we need to institutionalize this. It needs to become really part of the entire design process end to end. Brett, how do you feel about that? 
I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a lot of the big tech companies have fired or let go of their ethical teams. And, and it's like a cost center as opposed to something that's creating value. It's just the way they conceptualize what it is they're doing and the roles that different actors are playing is messed up. I think in the academic setting, it's improving, but perhaps too slowly. I actually have a paper coming out in Harvard Journal of Law and Technology where my co-author Paul Ohm and I wrote. Paul has this line that I, I don't want to attribute this for both of us. We both say this, but he has this line that's in there. He, he compares like injecting ethics into undergraduate comp sci education, like force feeding foul tasting medicine. <laughs> so, so he says basically like, you know, just injecting a little bit of ethics into an undergrad comp sci class or requiring all comp sci students to take one semester of like ethics. It doesn't quite get what we're, what we're trying to driving towards, which is like you need real integration of thinking. You really need sort of people to take each other as contributing productive members of some a collaborative team. And I think the underlying logics in engineering and in economics and in fields and even political science to some degree that drive like what we think we ought to be doing need to be checked. Like if, we, if, if we're all we're pursuing is efficiency, and productivity, like that's the primary thing we're trying to achieve as engineers, as social scientists, as poly, you know, people making decisions in businesses. That will inevitably lead us to shortchange other social values, the things that matter about being human. You, you want to use smart tech to outsource the mundane, you know, boring filling out receipts aspects of your lives. Absolutely, I'm on board. But then the question is, what do we use that free time for? If we use it to write poems, to engage meaningfully with each other, hopefully offline, then okay, great. But the question is, when we're designing these systems, if it's all about efficiency and productivity, we're going to inevitably be going down the wrong path. Sorry, I'm blabbering on again. You're supposed to stop me. <laughs> no, I love it. It's 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 just it's bringing up so much for me. And the way I'm processing it in my little brain is I was thinking about, because I'm a structural engineer, and I worked in construction for about 15 years. And... The biggest single cultural change that I saw, and this happened before I joined the industry, was in health and safety. So there was that time when there were no hard hats, no steel toe boots. The culture was very kind of, I don't know, are you allowed to say cow cowboyish? Is that, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, we'll just, we'll do it. This is how we do it. It mm -hmm. will get done. People might get injured. There might be a death on site. You know, oh, it'll, you know, it'll get done. And the huge cultural change that, like, people know that that is not acceptable anymore. And somehow people came together and rallied and said, we are making this cultural change to the health and safety of this industry. But I think the time it took to achieve that, the amount of collaboration, discussion, debate, and then getting everybody on board was the reason that that change happened. And I guess the concern here is how do you get everybody on board? Well, I'll tell you the exact, here's another analogy. I love your analogy, by the way. Health and safety in building and, and construction is a, is a great example, but it's, it's like environmental, the environmental movement, right, took decades and decades and decades to help people to even begin to understand the external effects from pursuing efficiency and productivity. And look how much we're struggling globally to deal with climate change as a social dilemma. That's similarly death by a thousand cuts, like similar form as the one that I would just, we describe in reengineering humanity. But in order to get people to deal with climate change, like systematically for all of us, it's not just tackling big coal or big oil, just like it's not like tackling big tech in our space. It's changing what people think matters. You, you actually have to 
understand that the, the welfare of future generations depends on what we do today. But, you know, the, pro- the problem I see, Brett, you know, that, that it's absolutely right. But, you know, just looking at it, you know, health and safety, it's really measurable. You can measure the casualties. We understand it. And yet it took so long, it appears. Now you're talking about something which is difficult to measure over time frames, which are, you know, not fathomable with, with our way of thinking. So and, and a lot we discussed today is a, you know, hypothetical future, which could be. So I think we kind of need to come up with new frameworks, which are able to condense that into something we as engineers could actually understand within one semester, act on that and really get that going. So I think we have more work to do, you know, rather than saying this is something for the next 50 years. Does it make sense what I'm saying, Brad? It's just new framework needed, I feel. Yes, I, I think you're you're right. It's in, I've struggled this for the last 20 years. Like a bunch of the things I've, I've been working on yeah. is, is dealing with things that are very hard to measure, but nonetheless, we kind of can come to an agreement matter. Right? So how do you measure the diminishment in our humanity? How do you evaluate and measure when we become less capable of thinking for ourselves? I mean, I don't mean to plug the, go back to the book and plug it, but we developed this thing which computer scientists will love, which a, a bunch of reverse Turing tests. Like we proposed the idea of instead of asking whether a machine's intelligent, can we identify when humans are unintelligent or when we're behaving in a in a machine-like way, get it, right? Like, are we losing common sense or are we losing our capability for rational thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. love it. And how would you test it? Well, you test it against the baseline of a, of a simple machine. And I'd ask you, even today's world, I'm not talking about 10 years from our 50, ask yourself today, we have all this digital network tech, we have more information, more data available for more people in the world than ever in human history, right? Are we smarter? Is the average person today smarter than the average person a decade ago? Yeah, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know the answer, and I'm not pretending that like to make yeah, some big yeah, grand claim yeah. about like we're all dumber or something. I don't know, but the idea. But is that, that is that the intention? Is that the goal? Is to make us more intelligent? Like, what is the goal here? Oh, well, I think that's what we. Question. I think there's a bunch of goals, right? Yeah. Like, Amisha, well, when you're designing a systems for society, like smart. Let's say we're to take a smart city or a smart home, or a smart town, or a smart whatever, like, but a system for, for a collection of people. What's the goal of the systems we're building? Yeah, it's con- I think, you know, it's, it's convenience. It's, it's really less about, you know, the direct implications. It's making the collaterals easier. So the, you know, the noise in your life make it less and make life convenient. But the overall goal, you know, I think, you know, there needs to be something very humane there. I just want to come back to this, you know, even something which maybe isn't really measurable. And just thinking about your inverse Turing test, which I love, by the way, you know, if we could have something which also, you know, kind of comes back to this very essence, what do we want? Then maybe what we want is something not measurable, just very humane your happiness in a way which you can't quantify. So that's my hypothesis here. And I'll leave that. If anybody listens into that, you know, surprise us with some beautiful frameworks. And I wouldn't be surprised if Brett has an answer already. So yeah. well, <laughs> well, the, the second to last chapter in our book is To What End yeah. is the name of the chapter. And it's all about like what are the set of values we ought to like be looking for you know it's it's what capabilities are essential to human flourishing like we want people to flourish in cities we want people to flourish in communities what does that mean it's not just being intelligent although being 
capable in terms of being able to reason, practical reason, uh, sociality, like the ability to relate to each other effectively. Like there's a set of capabilities that if we design technologies in our smart systems to enable people, either because they've got more time, because for convenience reasons, you've removed some of the drudgery of, of work and life so they have more time to to practice and be capable and interact with people, but or because the technologies themselves improve or like help us, they augment our capabilities, augment our intelligence. But it's not, it's not clear that like take generative AIs just as a random example. It's not clear to me, at least not yet, that access to chat GPT makes anyone more creative, more capable. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how my bosses in structural engineering used to send letters to each other and then emails came around and we went, great, we're going to have a lot more time to do, I don't know what, creative work, design, this kind of stuff. Is that true? I don't know, because now you're sending 100 emails a day instead of two letters. It, it seems like a very kind of prickly problem to unravel. And what I'm really taking away from this conversation is that all of us, like individually, but also collectively, need to go away and really think about what matters. And I think that's the only kind of reasonable starting point that can lead us to something that works. Now, on that note, because I th- I'm sure we could all chat forever. Misha, can you tell us one thing that you've learned from Brett today? You know, the one thing which really struck with me is a, a very unorthodox, out-of-the-box thinking about, you know, how to, to gorge that interplay a human's machine. And the reverse Turing test is something I really want to dig very deep in because I feel this is translatable to a lot of problems we are trying to solve as an industry and within Ericsson. Fantastic. And and Brett, have you learned anything? No, I'm joking. Uh, one thing that you've learned from Misha that's going to stick with you. Well, yeah, a few things. Like I think we've I found a new partner, a collaborator on stuff for sure, because um, <laughs> the, the connection of our ideas is great. Thinking about IoT and shifting into, into skills was something that really resonated. So how, how, in fact, we can lead to skill development, building these ubiquitous uh, systems sounds pretty fascinating. Um, and it's, it seems like if we could couple our ideas together, it would be something quite uh, quite productive. And also, I you know, I frankly hadn't been following the. Uh, this is going to sound very embarrassing. Don't put this on the. Oh, I guess you could put it on. Who cares? I hadn't. <laughs> I hadn't realized there was six G. I was like, what? Six G's up? I haven't been following the, <laughs> the, the infrastructure. Oh, yes, uh, I've been sort of out of the infrastructure world, communications infrastructure. You know, reading a little bit. So I like what six G. Oh, I got to catch up now. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, that just goes to the point out. You know how quickly all this stuff is changing, and um, yeah, it's it's difficult to keep up. So should I tell you who the winner of the debate is then? <laughs> That's, it's a trick. It's a trick question. There, there is no winner. Um, the listener, the listener wins. The listener's the winner. I love that. Um, thank you both. It's been such a brilliant discussion. I love that. You know, we've agreed on things. We've disagreed on things. We've debated things. I love that we've talked about law and engineering, but also music and art and engineering. I'm going to have to go away and have a big long think about how it's going to um, develop and how these technologies are going to integrate in our lives. But really, the one thing that's really, really clear to me now is that we really need to think about what matters to us as humans. So thank you so much for the discussion. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering in Peanut and Crumb. This episode featured Brett Frischman and Misha Diller. It was presented by Roma Agarwal and was produced by Jude Shapiro.
Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers. We'll be exploring topics such as decolonizing the engineering industry, sustainable water supplies, and living breathing buildings. To find out more follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.